It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. For some historians, there's no dirtier word than presentist. It means you're using concepts or ideas from the now to understand the past. And in the process, you distort what that past was. You're violating the supposedly inviolable tenet of history that the past is a foreign country. But then sometimes you encounter something from 100, 200, maybe even 400 years ago, and you not only see some familiar quotidian dilemma that someone from centuries ago also felt, you also might even see yourself. For me, the most common way this happens is when I see a letter between people begin with the line, I'm sorry for taking so long to respond. Because that apology that this person several hundred years ago wrote with a pen on paper to begin a letter, chances are that on any day in 2020, I too have conveyed that same message in a long delayed email or text message response. Sorry, everyone. And it makes me feel for a moment a connection across time. It makes me feel that, to paraphrase This American Life's paraphrase of Us Weekly, historical figures, they're just like us. Okay, so maybe that's a trivial example. But there are also more consequential, more poignant cases. Here's one from 1700, when an Ottoman poet by the name of Nabi wrote a poem of warning to his son regarding his career choices, advice that will perhaps hit a little too close to home for those of us trying to find academic work these days. Never think that the scholastic path is a leisurely path. Verily, it has no safety or security. There are no limits to the dangers of that path. The destination is always far off. Getting a chair in the schools is hard. You fight for each step forward. During your first years, you live in poverty with the hope that you will get respect in your later years. But neither your early years nor your later years will provide leisure. Tremendous hardship awaits between each rank. After a 50, that is a 50 actually teaching post, you become a man of the road. You take your home to Aleppo and Damascus. You hope eventually to have the comforts of a high post. That is, if you live long enough to see one. This is a poem? Yes, this is, a, this is, uh, this is, yes, uh, some lines of that. That poem was read by Harun Kuchuk, who is an assistant, pro- you know what, actually I'll let him introduce himself. I'm, I'm not intimidating, am I? Okay. No, no, no. Okay. No, I don't want to be, right. Um, so my name is Harun Kuchuk, I'm an assistant professor of history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm an early modernist and I'm a general purpose uh, historian of science. I teach um, introduction to the history of science. I teach general historiography courses and also some early modern seminars. Um, and on a more amusing level, I'm the guy who asks about money whenever I share a room uh, with others in a seminar setting, as in like, well, you know, how much per- money does this person make, etc. So you're not asking like a seminar guest how much they make, you're, you're asking about historical... Historical actors, right. right. So I'm not asking, well, how much do you make? Um, I ask like, okay. Zoe Griffith and I talked recently with Harun. We met at Baruch College in New York City. Zoe, who is Bernard Baruch? Financier. Financier. We discussed Harun's new book, which is called Science Without Leisure, Practical Naturalism in Istanbul, 1660-1732, published by University of Pittsburgh Press. We explored how asking questions about the money has helped him see connections between early modern Istanbul and the institution many of us work in or are affiliated with today, the university. 
And fair warning, we might even get a little presentist. But we're going to start in 17th century Istanbul. Um, so Istanbul, 17th century, you don't have much that is old that's left in Istanbul. So um, I mean, there is like a really, again, well-articulated social structure to the Ottoman Empire. Well, in the 17th century, you don't really see that structure anymore. In the 17th century, what you see is generally like an esnaf society. So you have a society of like entrepreneurs and shopkeepers and people who are like in business for one thing or another. And even people who are um, officials, you know, quote unquote, they themselves have their like side gigs, like trading in this, running a shop in that, etc. So this is, you know, the, the background. Um, Istanbul is super crowded. Um, Topkapı Palace is super crowded. And the government continues to be the only source of salary jobs. Right. So this is um, something that's happening in the 17th century. Period. As far as I know, yes, period. Period. Um, and the government isn't paying good salary. So like salary jobs are going through a general collapse. So you know, there is this whole issue of like Janissaries becoming like Esnaf. Well, it's not like they wanted to become Esnaf. But if you pay them like what would be the equivalent of maybe like $200 a month, here you are asking money. about money again. Yeah, I'm asking about money. So why do you become Esnaf? Because uh, it's not like, you know, I want to be a soldier and an Esnaf. Like that doesn't strike me as like a childhood dream. Like you might want to be a soldier <laughs> or an Esnaf. But I don't, I, you never like imagine yourself as like, I want to be an underpaid soldier. Soldier, <laughs> right. Soldier who also sells like lemons on the side or something. <laughs> right. Um, but that's like, you know, that's the, that's the fate like most Istanbulites are facing in the 17th century. And um, so the numbers of people who are working for the state are like extremely swollen. I mean, there is one account of Topkapı Palace in the 17th century where like a European visitor says, I think there are about 40,000 people living in Topkapı Palace. It's like rush hour New York Metro, but think of it as the size of a palace. And uh, you know, there are like 50,000 Janissaries, again, like really making extremely low salaries and professors again who are like making extremely yeah low maybe we could talk more what is the educational infrastructure of this place and is that connected to to these state institutions i mean one thing we don't talk about is like uh, what a monstrous thing the educational scene in istanbul is so by the end of the reign of Ahmed III, 1730, there are 275 madrasas in istanbul i think that's a number that's like unheard of um, that many educational institutions in a city that's got a population of like half a million, give or take. So, you know, on paper, you should be thinking, wow, this is like like the city of Atlantis or something, right? That's that's the scale um, that, you know, the numbers suggest uh, for Istanbul. And, you know, if you look at what Madeleine Zilfi said, you know, she's, she thinks that there are even more professors who aren't necessarily attached to physical madrasas. So there are like madrasas on paper that also hire professors. So, I mean, it's like every other person is a professor or a student, right? So that's the that's the setting in Istanbul. But of course, you know, just like um, some educational institutions today, uh, you also have to think uh, that madrasas may be like real estate holdings with like classrooms attached to them, right? This is, you know, one of the sad realities of, of the madrasas. And madrasas that use not to be like this 
um, are turning into this. So, you know, the, the, the royal or the imperial madrasas, like most of them, they have like huge endowments. They are bringing in just massive amounts of money. But what's happening is, you know, that money is being like rerouted to the central treasury and away from like the charitable activities that they are supposed to be undertaking. Especially after the siege of Vienna, the you know the sultans use a lot of like madrasa endowments, etc., to fund wars. So on a structural level, maybe these madrasas are real estate holdings with some educational component. But what does it seem like to the the students who are going there? What what are they trying to get out of it? For one, like it's really hard to find like people who are completely like regular in their academic careers. So, you know, people either have like exceptionally long professorships or they have like exceptionally short professorships. And if you look at just, you know, the, the personal observations in the 17th century, the idea is, well, you know, you um, enroll in a madrasa simply because you must enroll in a madrasa. Um, you know what you know already by the time you get to the medicine, or maybe you don't even need to learn anything. But, you know, this kind of, like, step-by-step, step, like, you know, you start at the bottom, you, like, you know, go through your years, and then you start with a junior job, and then you go through the steps, etc. This is quite unusual for anybody living in the 17th century. There are other things, um, like texts actually get shorter in the 17th century. So, um what you would call textbooks are much briefer, much simpler in the 17th century compared to what you would find, say, at the end of the 15th century. And so everyone who enters, or the students who enter these madrasas and the professors, is there any goal other than replicating the madrasa profession? I mean, do people enter the madrasas in order to become professors themselves or qadis or bureaucrats? Or I mean, what are the possible outcomes for somebody going through the educational system in the 17th century? Right. A judicial career, I think, is the only goal. Um, and this, again, isn't because like everybody wants to be a qadir. Uh It's because that's the only way to make a good living with a uh, with a medrese degree, as it were, a medrese education, or at least some appearance of having a medrese education. When you look at the like the late 15th century, 16th century, there is a phenomenon where the high-ranking medreses are kind of like as as far as like you know the teaching posts are concerned, they are like interlaced with um with kadoships. So you know you can be like the kado of Üsküdar, then you can come back and teach at, I don't know, like Suleimani or something like that. By the end of the 17th century, that doesn't exist. All teaching career, all teaching posts are below all judicial posts, right? So that's also something that happens over the 17th century. You don't, you know, teaching is no longer a prestigious occupation in relation to, you know, codeships. And this is largely happening because of these broader economic structures and their impact on things like salaries and I think so I mean that's that's the way I see it um it's just that you know you don't make a good living even by a long shot if you're teaching so you kind of want to get one of those kadoships and not all kadoships pay well either it's just that you have direct access to monetary resources of other sorts when you occupy a kadoship so it's much more lucrative in comparison Okay, so this is Mustafa Ali, and Mustafa Ali is, uh, well, he's somebody who went to the medrasa but couldn't get a teaching appointment, so he's uh, 
he's just he's got this like really choleric temperament throughout this book which is a you know book of counsel for the sultans for those illustrious great who are known as the great mullahs never stop showing off vis-a-vis -vis each other merely by putting on the robe and claiming to be philosophers Feylesuf. just because they have acquired a woolen garment Uf. They are always hiding under the robe with their tail turbans and enormous sleeves. They are full of great words. They never come together with their equals. That is, they never gather because each one claims superiority over the next one. They fear that a conversation on a scholarly topic might take place and that everyone's scholarly talents might come to light. They don't allow those to talk who are by rank inferior to them. That is, who are rank-wise their subordinates, occupying an office of the lower grades, but who might possibly be superior to them in scholarship and would show a high degree of learning, if they were to share in the conversation. If one of them would dare to open his mouth when the conversation turns around a scholarly subject, they silence him with the words, who are you to speak in this gathering? And they pay no attention to him. In this way, their clothes and underclothes are perfect, but their personal erudition is a perfect non-entity. No doubt, the king of the world, the monarch with numerous retinue, should demand works from such ones year by year, and when they come up for a new appointment, he should examine them together with their rivals, so that each one's degree of learning becomes manifest, and also the stupidity of those who regard it as a scholarly achievement, when someone is just able to explain in Turkish the meaning of some Arabic compounds. Today's academic job market, you wouldn't think that it would be applicable to 17th century Istanbul, partly because, you know, we think of where we are as a point in the development of capitalism. So we are at the, like the late capitalist stage. We're looking at neoliberalism. So we would not expect to find this like, you know, quasi Mad Max scenario back in 16th, 17th centuries. Like I didn't know how to use these things plausibly because Without the economic evidence as a substrate in the analysis, it's very difficult to talk about passages like this as anything other than discourse. So you're like, okay, there is an angry guy, so what? Right. But then when you put it together with right. why he is angry, right. then you're like, uh-huh, okay, now I understand him. So what was it that you were investigating at the time that once you realized there was this economic component like things started to fall into place. Um, what was it? What was the discourse that you were sort of skeptical of and then the materiality started to make sense? Well, thank you. That's actually the, the big issue that I've had. Um, so as it usually happens, I think, with much of Ottoman history, we look at 15th, 16th century stuff. That's the classical age. And then it's like mumble, mumble, and then modernization, right? So I wanted to understand, you know, what's happening in that like mumble mumble period, um, and because it's yet unnamed, right? Yeah. Um, so in that period, um, and I think mumble mumble is not entirely wrong uh, for that period because nobody really tells you. Well, you know, you had stuff going on in the 15th, 16th centuries. Then you no longer have this stuff going on in the 17th centuries, 17th and 17th and 18th centuries. So you wonder, well, did you not like it? Like, is there a reason why you give up on this? Like, were you like against this? And then nobody really tells you like anything. It's just silent. It's 
you know, you have some stuff there, 15th, 16th centuries, and then it's not there anymore. So I'm wondering, okay, so what happened? You don't have a someone narrating it for you. And then, you know, people who are narrating it for you are generally considered like doing like a discourse, like this, like a person, like we just see a pure subjectivity in people's understanding of what was going on. Well, what was happening, like objectively, if you want to like get down to it. And the best I could find was basically inflation. And actually, I should interject here that the term that Harun uses for this crisis of political economy is in his own words by far the most loaded and most controversial element of the book. And that's decline. Of course, many people have used this term. In recent decades, many have criticized it. And what Harun is doing is employing it advisedly here to refer to the material conditions of scholarship in which professors' salaries became about one-tenth of what they had previously been. Where the interview picks up again is Harun describing how these material conditions affected intellectual production. It is tremendously deleterious. Um, (laughs) uh, Well, so just to lay a baseline, um, start with like some of the simplest things. So, kelam. Right, so um, a sense of religious doctrine. Um, there is kelam in the 15th, 16th centuries, and it's very much in your face because it's something that, you know, if you want a high teaching post, it's something you need to teach at Sahna Seman. In the 17th century, there is no such thing as Ottoman kelam, and it does a bunch of things. So one might want to talk about things like, you know, the Ottoman theology um, or Ottoman doctrine. Well, if you don't have anybody who's actively engaged in like figuring out like the systematic connections within religion or within religious beliefs, well, then it's quite unlikely that you would have any doctrine or theology. So you might have like certain like precepts, um, generally very brief ones, or you your religion may be reduced to just what you do. Like you know, it's like go to the mosque, uh, you fast, and that may be that, like you could get circumcised if you're a guy, but you know there is no like, I have to conceive of the world as such a place if I'm like faithful. So, so that like all of that apparatus is no longer there. Nobody's producing it anymore. A lot of the things that, you know, um, people who are working on earlier periods of Islamic astronomy talk about, um, like, you know, all these mathematical devices that made it to Europe and then, you know, gave rise to Copernicus, etc. Well, nobody in Istanbul is interested in any of that. Large-scale investigations of heavenly motion. Are we at the center of the world? Is sun at the center of the world? Or whatever, like, you know, nobody cares. Another thing that's happening, of course, is um, there is also a public health infrastructure in Istanbul. So you have like hospitals and you even have a medical madrasa. So, you know, at some point in the 15th, 16th centuries, there is actually like a fairly modern way of like educating people, licensing them. And there's like a fairly high level of like intellectual engagement with what's generally called Islamic tradition. In the 17th century, that also isn't there. So all of the genres that define what Islamic tradition and astronomy means to us, again, is no longer there. So nobody's doing like large scale observations. Nobody's doing theory. So if people aren't interested in questions of theory, what are they interested in? When people are interested in questions of theory, that's usually a sign of like geekery, right? <laughs> so you're interested in something for the sake of itself, because... Um, 
you may want to know, well, when is the sun going to rise? That question is quite different from, say, what determines the regularity at which you know, the sun rises and sets or something like that, right? So suddenly you are um, engaging in uh, what may be called like a second order, uh, third order reflection on something, which you wouldn't necessarily care about, right? So, I mean, even today, like, you know, lots of things I want to know, like little tidbits, but I'm not going to like sit down and try to like build a theory of that thing just like because what kinds I, of things when you get sick like you're like okay like i have a headache how do i get rid of this headache or you know my son has a headache like how do i get rid of this headache but you know i'm not you're, going you're to... not going to have a conversation with your son about the metaphysics of pain and right so i'm not yes i'm definitely not going to have a conversation about metaphysics of pain and furthermore i'm not going to ask like what causes a headache anyways, right? That's not going to, uh, that's not going to be like, you know, the first thing that I ask. That might be like second, third, fourth thing that I ask, but if I'm not running into like problems, I probably won't give it a second thought. And so in the book, this is what you call practical naturalism. Correct, that's, that's what practical naturalism is. So people still, you know, Ottomans, their ships still float. People, you know, if you get sick, you're still getting treatment. You still have, like, you know, if you want to, like, buy products of, like, some technical sophistication, you can still buy them. If you need services, you can still get them. But what you're not going to get is, again, like, you know, somebody who's, like, professing, like, anatomy at the medrese. Like, you know, that's the thing that you're going to be missing. The history of science has been engaging with this kind of inquiry for a while now. They have generally focused on, say, like, artisans or practitioners, etc. Now, what practical naturalism maybe adds to this already, like, massive body of literature is it defines practical naturalism in relation to theory. Right. So these people aren't artisans like they don't really have many special things going for them or, you know, this general category doesn't require you to have like this special expertise in one branch of practice or another. Um, it just tells you that a lot of the things that you think are science or you think are early modern science, looking back at it from today, they don't even care about. And that's, I think that's the thing that I really want to put forward. Like, you know, a lot of what we call science, nobody cares about them, even when they're doing like technically sophisticated things. And how does money play into this? Practical naturalists have some material engagement with the, with the subject of their inquiry. So they aren't like idly curious about theory. And they also, I guess, aren't engaging with those things where there is like, no money, like there is no like service attaching to this, etc. So they went to the madrasa. There, there are limited options for employment. Right. There are low salaries if there is employment, and right. so figure out a way to sell the thing that you know about. Right. Yeah. Basically. I mean, I also just I love a, a line where you mentioned that the way we think about theoretical science or the kind of pursuit of Greek knowledge that is going on in European universities. Uh, what's Eurocentric about that is how it ignores the way people experience nature, experience the world around them is generally through suffering. When you said, I don't think about what causes a headache. Well, yes, you do. Insofar as like, oh, I'm dehydrated, I better, or something like this, you know, like you're interested in knowing what causes the headache so that you can fix the headache. Beyond that, it's not, not that relevant. It's certainly not what you care about when you have a headache. But so this question of 
affluence versus suffering or lack of leisure, which is, you know, a big theme in your book. I mean, I'd just love to hear a little bit more about what is the role of leisure in science? This seems like a really important aspect of, of what you're doing as well, and it's in the title of the book. So science with leisure looks like generally an interest in, like, theoretical things, a sort of disengagement from what one may call material life. And in a way, you know, this is, this is quite easy to understand, like when you are at a university today, look, I mean, what I do is entirely irrelevant to like pretty much everybody. Like if I didn't exist in this world, nobody's life would be worse. Well, you know, I'm like, enjoying I this interview. Well, I mean, right. It's like you wouldn't have this much fun. That's true. I mean, even today, I don't think you have like a science of something unless you have someone doing it with leisure and generally speaking in some very useless way. Right. Um, and it seems like the question of use and leisure is really tied up with time. You probably know this, know this meme like, uh, you know, there is uh, they're asked they need a doctor like, you know, somebody's dying on the plane and like the historian says everybody's already dead. It's like you know, that's like the perspective you give or like, you know, as a philosopher, the perspective you give is like everybody dies anyways. Right. It's different time scales, the different time, different time scales. Right. So it's the absence of this urgency that that makes your like perspective a scientific perspective in order to cultivate this distance from material realities of things, well, you need to be kind of shielded from the material realities of that thing. And that's where like time comes in, right? In order for me to cultivate perspective, like I need time away from pressing material needs. Yeah. And in, so in some ways you're making this materialist point that these basic necessities aren't being met by intellectual life in Istanbul. And as a result, people had to marshal their knowledge for money. Right. And in, a, in a very direct way, ra in a very ra direct rather than way. counting on a chair at a university that would pay them a living wage. This also goes back to like the to the training aspect of things also. So, I mean, if you're not going to be writing about, say, like high aspects of like religious doctrine, you're like, why am I even studying this? Right. This is kind of like what we experience with our undergraduates today for the for the most part. You, you know, if you do like a tough course, they're like, well, you know, how is this going to help me? And I'm like, OK, like, you know, most things in college, you know, you may or may not know this, but they don't help you in that way anyways. Right. But they are becoming pragmatic because they think that they will have to deploy every bit of their knowledge towards like pragmatic ends. So that's kind of like how it colors like, you know, the. The moment of use colors, you know, what comes before and what comes after if you, you know, over a long period of time. And that's that's the other thing. Right. So there is a there is an important like morphological or like historical element to this. So when things aren't good, like people's reaction isn't at first to like say, oh, my God, like, you know, just let's ditch education. Like some people react that way, but not everybody does. But, you know, if this is this unleisurely situation is your life for like one generation, two generations, then things get transformed in some permanent way. Like, you know, you forget that there was that thing in the first place. You make a few points Please. in the conclusion that you say are playfully provocative. And I wonder if I could throw some of these out there and you could briefly explain what you mean by them. One of them that comes through the book in a number of places is 
You don't believe the Islamic world exists. History of science is generally considered to be like one of the, like the feet uh, on which our sense of an Islamic world stands. So Islamic science, you know, well, what's so Islamic about the Islamic world? Well, first of all, you know, they have this thing called like Islamic science. That's actually, you know, the thing on which the whole civilization's contribution to the to world history kind of argument rests. In this period, you don't have that. In the 15th century, maybe you had that. In the 16th century, maybe you had that. And I leave it to 15th, 16th century experts to, to be the judges of this. Because your sense of what's happening in Istanbul is not necessarily connected to Cairo or Aleppo or other places. No, that's, that's not the sense I get at all. And furthermore, right, there is like a certain exceptionalism that comes with this sense of like the Islamic world, that we have these like special Islamic things going on. Well, Istanbul doesn't really have any of those going on. I'm very lucky in that, you know, lots of studies of other parts of the world have already been published. So there is like a what may be called like a global historiography of science that's emerging. And, you know, when you look at Istanbul, you realize what a regular, normal, like, middle-of-the-bunch place it is. So, you know, you look at astronomy in China or astronomy in Spain at around the same time, it's like it's the same. You know, what they all share is, like, you know, it seems nobody cares about, like, Copernicus or Kepler or Newton, etc. So, yes, I, I definitely don't think that there is, like, a unified scientific tradition that's that defines the Islamic world anymore. So when I look at it from the perspective of science, there is no Islamic world. Another point that you make, a bold point, is that what's happening in Istanbul is, if anything, hyper-modern. Look, I mean, we think about the unfolding of history in some modernist fashion, as in, like, you know, modernity is that thing that you want to reach. It's a, it's an enduring extremity, Right. So it's like you're trying to like catch up because like there is this extremity that's like moving and then you're either falling short or you're catching it. But we never think that, well, maybe like, you know, the pinnacle of modernity isn't like the unification of Germany in the middle of the 19th century. Maybe it's more like what we're seeing today. Right. So like this like high entropy situation rather than like this fairly low entropy, like orderly society type of situation that you find in 19th century. So what do you mean by entropy? Low entropy, so like the lowest entropy society is the comical image of medieval society. Well, you know, what you do, you do exactly, you know, what your parents did, and you make exactly the same amount of living doing what your parents did. And unless like somebody comes and decides to like conquer your territory, your life does not change at all. I mean, of course, this is comical, but this is really, you know, the lowest entropy, like furthest from modernity kind of living. And we think that, you know, modernity is like a high entropy situation where like people are moving all the time, like super dynamism, like innovation, social mobility, like all of those things. Well, it seems to me that Istanbul had too much of those. And what they were lacking is like a bit more of that like low entropy situation. Every person is kind of like showing up from nowhere. Like you describe them as entrepreneurs. Yeah, they're like entrepreneurs. Like, you know, you they hit it big, like, you know, they make big money. So a lot of those like stabilizing things that we associate with medieval society, which is by all means what the Ottoman Empire should be if it's going to modernize, right? Are what's absent. That's why I'm calling it hypermodern. So uh one more bold claim. I'm not sure if this is the boldest, but you say that the thing called the scientific revolution is actually the scientific counter-revolution. 
again, there is like a very deep historiography of the scientific revolution that tells you, well, one, like scholastics, they were the bad guys, you know, the scientific revolution overthrew scholastics, those guys. Sorry. Yeah, scholastics are like... Um, People at the universities, like these sleepy fellows, like who are like no good, they don't even do like, you know, good research, etc. These like low entropy characters who had like no dynamism to their work. Scientific Revolution was about overthrowing that. And, you know, even like Kant's uh, What is Enlightenment is somewhat about that. You're kind of like removing the shackles like you're like, you know, opening yourself to like intellectual like freedom, like free thought, like all that good stuff. Well, in Istanbul, if you're a scholastic, you're pretty much at like the bottom of society. Very few people respect you. So, I mean, it's not like you are putting any shackles on anybody to begin with. Like, you know, it's so you got that freedom. But when you get that freedom at the level at which, you know, Istanbul gets it, then you realize, well, people give up on what you call theoretical science altogether. And this also has to do with the bourgeoisie, right? We talk about, well, bourgeoisie like emerged and they created their own scientific culture. Well, the fact is, you know, if you have a purely bourgeois society, which is, again, what you would find in Istanbul, it doesn't seem like anybody is doing, like, physics or anybody is, like, concerned about, like, the structure of the heavens. Or in... And so what gives people in certain parts of Northwest Europe the luxury to think about these questions of theory is actually an accumulation of medieval knowledge. Exactly. So it's the accumulation and preservation of medieval knowledge. You know, the fact that, you know, you can still find people who will teach you like Aristotle for years, like all that stuff that I think a lot of people have loved to hate are actually the reasons why Europe has something looking like the scientific revolution. Because the real scientific, the real revolution looks like Istanbul. And again, I don't think like, you know, even today, like looking at this, I don't think a lot of people will have much taste for it because the university has had, I think, tremendous success, especially in the West. And I don't think many people like to think about, seriously think about a world without the university, which is, again, something that we may be looking at given the current situation. So that's a question I wanted to ask about is what has it been like writing this book personally, as you're also within the institution that in some ways you're writing about? This has been partly about me, right? I mean, you can read this whole book as uh, as my plea to get tenure. Like, you know, I need more leisure. Please give me more leisure. I can't do science without leisure. That's one way to like read it at the purely like narcissistic level. Like when you open it up, then I look at, well, the situation in the United States, you know, if you make the mistake of like reading the Chronicle of Higher Education with some frequency, you realize, oh, like, hey, I, I know a guy who said what you said, except he said that in like 300 years ago, right? <laughs> um, so there is partly that. And partly, you know, this has to do with Turkey and Turkish politics. So there is a huge industry of just giving people things to be proud of, things to feel good about things people living today didn't do. So, you know, there is like, you know, somebody goes on TV and says, you know, if my like great grandfather didn't teach you like mathematics, you wouldn't be able to like count your money at the grocery store and, and things like that. Right? So there is like a lot of cultural heritage value assigned to Islamic science. But then I think the case of Istanbul shows that, you know, that Islamic science, whatever it may be, flourished when you took good care of your scholars and kind of disappeared when you just, you stopped taking care of them. 
So what's happening to today's academics in Turkey is kind of like what happened to Turkey's academics like 300 years ago, right? So there are all these things that are kind of connected. So I, I guess in a way, I try to develop a perspective from which I could look at all of these things critically. You know, you said it's hard to read the Chronicle sometimes because you see these long historical connections. How conscious were you of those connections between your own life and and what you're reading? I have to say, like, at when you are feeling the precarity, it's hard to cultivate the distance to say, oh, this is like just like 300 years ago. So if I didn't have a tenure track job, I probably wouldn't be able to cultivate this historical perspective. The fact that I have seen these things, but also the fact that, you know, I am able to like distance myself from these realities allows me to bring historical perspective to it so I can be useless and scientific about, you know, what's happening to the job market today in a way that I couldn't be useless and scientific about when I was still looking for a job. So something that's striking to me about this book is you have a lot of these very arrestingly direct comparisons between the past and the present. You make bold claims. I wonder if you could talk about that writing process, because a lot of times people people like to hedge. People like to be careful. And it seems like you've you've made a conscious choice here, as as I said earlier, to be playful but also provocative. And and I wonder, you know, were the first drafts of this less provocative? So yes, I was. I started out super defensive to begin with, and as I guess most people's experiences in conferences go, like you know, I had I kind of had to be even more defensive sometimes because people are like, well, you know. This, is, this doesn't sound right to me. Where you assume, and I assume, that everybody knew this stuff better than I did. So that's, you know, one thing. This book actually carries, like, a lot of, like, the skepticism I encountered from others. But then it turns it back to them as, like, playful provocation. And I picked a conversational tone. Again, like, you know, there is, like, a way of writing, especially in area studies, where, like, you have to like stack the footnotes and make sure like you could well i mean i i set out to do that it's 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 a lot of work and you don't get to many places because uh, that kind of scholarship also commits you to what may be called like a conservative hyperempiricism where you're really not able to challenge any of the like the biggest issues hounding the field that you're in and part of it is it just was too much of a burden at some point. I was like, okay, like I can't write a book. Like I don't feel like writing a book. I had those days that I guess most academics have where you just you're just stunned like you can't write. And at the end of those days sometimes when you're going to bed, you get some good ideas. So um, and those good ideas that you get as you are going to bed is when you also don't have the voices of those critics in your head anymore. So I said, okay, you know what? I'll just write this. Ideally, I should have written a book like this after getting tenure. I don't think anybody would advise if they knew exactly what this book was going to be like. I don't think anybody would have said, okay, you know, go ahead, this is how you should write. Uh, but I did, and a lot of people supported me, like after they started like seeing bits and pieces of it. So I'm very grateful for that. But you know, lots of things that axiomatically you must accept as true. Like I said, you know what? I don't believe in any of those. I'm not seeing it. 
Um, am I seeing everything? I probably am not, but from what I know, like none of it makes sense. So I had to say these things. So I hope like it encourages other people to like if I wrote this and had it published and survived to see it in publication, I think I think other people may too. That's Harun Kachuk speaking with me and Zoe Griffith. His new book is Science Without Leisure on University of Pittsburgh Press. Um, so I just need to run up to the library and see if I can this do this really quick. It's right here. Um, As always, you can find a bibliography and some images on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Yeah, you can also join us on Facebook, where we have over 35,000 followers. That's it for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care. Um... Can I just leave you right here and be back in three minutes? Are you going to be in Istanbul anytime soon or no? It will be.